The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we need to hear from you today. Lord, the, the most fundamental part of our worship together as your people is to reverently, submissively hear you speak to us. So we're honored to share that privilege now. And Lord, I tremble at the responsibility of trying to be a messenger for that. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help me communicate this word clearly and faithfully. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would wake each one of us up again to who you are, what you've done, what you're saying. Open, our, open the eyes of our heart. Help us see. Open, open our ears. Help us really hear all the way down. Write your truth upon us, Lord, that we would believe, that uh, we would grow in Christ, we would be more enjoyably, more faithfully your children. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Why do people who have professed faith in Jesus as their Lord, as their Savior, why do they leave him sometimes? That's a hard question, isn't it? It's a, it's a hard question on, on one level because we're, we're trying to figure out the process so we can learn about it, so we can help people, so we can watch out for it in ourselves. But more than that, it's a painful question because we watched it happen. Um, sadly, it's like the, the secret normal. In some way, someone around, around us usually, in our lives, perhaps, or someone who professed faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their Savior. They profess to believe uh, he's the eternal son of God who took on flesh and lived a perfect life and died for sins and rose from the dead and reigns now. And they profess to say, we want to live for him. We want to know him. And then at some point, they drift from that. They neglect that. They fade from that. And maybe they may become atheists or maybe they just become, well, we don't care that much anymore. But they leave Jesus in any sense of wanting to follow him or pursue him. So Why? Why do people who profess faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior leave him? Well, Jesus talked about this issue in the parable of the soils. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke. In this parable, Jesus makes these comparisons, right? Uh, the news of the gospel, who Jesus is, uh, is compared to a seed that a farmer sows. And then the different kind of soils that seed hits well, those soils are compared to people's hearts and what they love the most. And so Jesus tells this parable, and then after he tells this parable, he always says, pay attention to how you hear. So how you hear this news of the gospel is part of how this ends up working in your heart. And by heart, we mean your core desires what you love the most. So I wanna, I wanna actually read to you uh, Jesus some of Jesus' conclusion on this in Mark 4. Let's look at Mark 4, 16. We're gonna hear about two, or we're, we're gonna hear about three of these soils. Mark 4, 16. 
These are the ones sown on rocky ground. Again, that's the seed of the gospel going into a heart, and, and that heart is compared to rocky ground. These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear, hear the word, immediately receive it in joy, with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Verse 18, others are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. So I hope you saw that. You got rocky soil, thorny soil, good soil. The third soil, the third soil stays with Jesus. Stays with Jesus. It bears fruit. It, it hears and accepts. But those two soils before, rocky and thorny soil, these are people who profess faith in Jesus Christ and then they leave him. Did you see why? We could come up in conversation probably with lots of influences as to why some people who profess faith in Jesus leave. And those are all important at some level, but I think Jesus here gets to some core issues. You saw in the first group, it's rocky soil that stops the growth of the gospel in the heart. That's the illustration. And here we see that's a desire for comfort over Christ. It's a desire for comfort over Christ. Because did you see it's when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. So it's where if you profess faith in Jesus, who he is and what he's done, what he says, and what he demands for from his people, if you press, profess faith in that, sometimes that will cause you trouble. From, from a big picture point of view, your society could marginalize or persecute you, or just from a local relational point of view, there could be a, a division because you hold to the word about Jesus. And so when that pressure comes where it's like the rubber meets the road and you have to choose, it's either faithfulness to Jesus or this loss of comfort somehow. The people who walk away are the ones who wanted comfort more than Christ. I'm not, I'm not dissing on a love for comfort. I enjoy comfort as much as the next person. Uh, we work towards all sorts of things to make our lives enjoyable, and there's nothing wrong with that. This isn't about whether or not you desire those things. This is about what you desire the most. That's what it's about. And when people face persecution, that desire set is tested in a new way. When everything's going easy, there's, there's no real test. How do you know you love this one more than that one? But when persecution comes, there's a, there's a test now where it's like, well, think of the audience this letter was written to. Some of them have lost their property for being faithful to Jesus. That's quite the test. Imagine if next Sunday it went like this. If you go to church and you worship Jesus explicitly with his people, we will take your house. 
you know, today's kind of a smaller service. We're missing some people for a variety of reasons. How small would it be next week? Or, I don't know, maybe it would be bigger. At any rate, there would be a test of our desires, wouldn't there? How much do we love him? And so we see that um, some people like Jesus to the point where he gives them what they really want, comfort, and then when he's no longer giving them that, they leave him behind. That's one reason people leave Jesus. The second reason, the second group, that was that soil that's so full of thorns, it kind of chokes out the growth of the gospel in the heart. I think we could call this a desire for control. And what I mean is it's the heart's desire to control one's own lifestyle. I control what I want, I go after that. My own autonomy in that. I'm going to live for what I want. Did you see those verses? It says, um, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. I mean, we can get what that's about. What's the deceitfulness of riches? I'll be happier if I live for riches. And so it's not like I became an atheist. It, just became, it was just like G, riches first and Jesus back here somewhere. Or uh, the desire for other things. I mean, think of how broad that is. Jesus says the desire for other things can choke out the gospel. Well, well what other things? And I think the answer would be nearly any other thing. Maybe you want to live a lifestyle where Jesus says, if you come to me, you can't live that lifestyle. And then, and then there's a choice. Do I, do I want Christ and what he says, or do I want this lifestyle? Or maybe it's just you get distracted. And these other things are your emphasis and your goal and your passion. And it just becomes, oh, oh yeah, Jesus and you neglect the gospel. And before we know, before we know it, you've left. So you see, this ultimate reason is about desires, isn't it? It's about what you want the most. And those who stay, those who stay with Christ, are the ones who ultimately, when push comes to shove, not perfectly, but genuinely, they want him more than anything else. The reason I bring all that up this morning, you're like, aren't we studying through Hebrews? The reason I'm bringing that up is because these influences Jesus is talking about in the parable of the soils are exactly the influences the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews are facing. As we've seen, they are a persecuted, marginalized group of Jewish Christians. Due to the situation of their day, they are most likely marginalized from their Jewish community because now they claim Jesus is Christ. And then being in a Greco-Roman setting, once they were no longer officially in the Jewish religion, they lost their religious political protections. And so now they're marginalized, and they're persecuted, and life is very hard. And so some of them are tempted, and perhaps there's even teachers saying, well, let's leave profession of Christ behind. Let's just go back to the Mosaic Law. We can still have the Bible. We can still be religious. We'll just leave Jesus over here, and you can kind of feel the driving motivation. The motivation is, I don't want to be marginalized or persecuted anymore. So they're tempted with these very influences. And just by the way, why do you think all this is in the Bible? Guess who else is going to be tempted with these very influences? We are. You are. 
You know, the, the letter of Hebrews kind of thinks of life as a race, and sometimes in our text today, he talks about it like a, a, there's a current flowing. And a danger, as we're going to see, is you can drift. And, and what do you have to do to drift, if you use that illustration? What do you have to do to drift? Nothing. That's what's so scary about it. Do nothing. And you can drift from the gospel. And so as people who, we want to understand why sometimes people who profess faith in Christ leave Christ so that we can, so that we can pray, so that we can help, so that we can talk, so we can watch out that it doesn't happen to us. And so in this passage today, 2 verses 1 to 9, that's where we are in Hebrews, um, you know, we've thought about reasons people leave Jesus after professing faith in him. I think this passage, Hebrews 2, 1 or 9, are three reasons why you really want to stay with Jesus no matter the cost. These are, these are reasons on the other side. This is why you'd want to make just darn well sure that you hang on to the gospel. And it is about the gospel. Listen, these people are not religious people thinking of leaving for atheism. These are Christians thinking of leaving the gospel for religion. They're not leaving behind morality. They're not even leaving behind the law. They're tempted to leave behind the gospel. So we want to learn from this. We're going to see three things, then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Three reasons to stay with Jesus, no matter the cost. And I'm going to use the word supreme for all of them because I think that's the author's point, how supreme Jesus is. So the first part is, this is the supreme seriousness of what you do with the gospel. Supreme seriousness. Second, the supreme subjection that Jesus has inherited. And third, the supreme grace. So the supreme seriousness, the supreme subjection. Third, the supreme grace. We start with the seriousness We'll be looking here at verses 1 to 4. Uh, verse 1 starts with the word, therefore. Whenever, especially a New Testament writer uses that word, you want to pay attention to context, right? He's thinking about what he said before, what we've studied the last two weeks. He has that in mind, and he's thinking, because of that, therefore, this. Okay? And so we, looking back, we think, well, what, what did he say about Jesus? And it's, it was breathtaking, right? It's overwhelming. It's majestic. He's the ultimate revelation of God. Right? Hebrews 1.1, and former times, last days, God spoke to us through his prophets, but now he has spoken perfectly, completely, ultimately, it's finished, in his son. And we saw seven glorious things about Jesus two weeks ago, about how he's the ultimate hope. And then the second part of Hebrews chapter 1, we saw all these things God says about his son from the Old Testament. And to sum it up, it's, it's like this, Jesus is the eternal son of God who through his life, death, and resurrection has, an, has inherited the name of King of Kings and Lord of Lords forever. This is the one. This is the fulfillment. This is it. This is everything. He's the promised king. And so it, now it's like, well, therefore, if this is who Jesus is, what should you do? And so in verses 1 to 4, just looking at the big picture of this section first, you see another comparison between the Old Testament and the gospel. The author of Hebrews loves to do this. It's nearly his whole book. Another comparison between the Old Testament and the gospel. There's always a continuity because it's the same God who wrote both. 
It's promise and fulfillment. But there's also a lesser to the greater every time. The Old Testament is far inferior to the fulfillment of who Jesus is. We see a little bit of that again here in verses 1 to 4. So, for instance, look at verse 2. The author writes, Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Let's just pause there. Did you, did you see what the author is saying about the Old Testament, the Mosaic law? First of all, think of the messengers of that law. In verse 2, he says, This message was declared by angels. I don't really know how that works, but it's amazing that it does work. Um, The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Galatians 3. Stephen says this in his sermon in Acts 7. But you have this mediation of the law by angels, which is majestic and wonderful. But as great as that is, who is it that mediates the gospel? Verse 3, the gospel was declared at first by the Lord. By the Lord. And so we saw last week, we'll see it again and again. Uh, angels, they're great. They're, they're, they're amazing. They're awe-inspiring. When you see one, you're terrified. And they're nothing compared to Jesus. They're created. He's the creator. They help. He saves. So the gospel has a better and a greater messenger, a better mediator. Why would you go back when you have this? Moreover, he says the Old Testament was shown to be reliable. And did you see how it was shown to be reliable? Because every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. If you rebelled against God by disobeying his word, you face the music of the justice of God. Read through the Old Testament, you'll be able to find a couple examples. It's just a reminder that to deny God's word and his ways is no small thing. It's a denial of him as God. It's not like we just accidentally did something. That's that's not the point. The point is when we refuse him and his ways, it's an assertion that we should be God in his place. We're saying we ought to be the authority. And that's quite the claim. And so God, the holy and righteous judge of the earth, he brings retribution. I think the ultimate example of this retribution would be the exile. You read the Mosaic Law, this is, this is our covenant. If you break this, the nations will come and they will pillage you and you will lose the land. And hundreds of years later, what occurred? That occurred. It was a just retribution and it shows you the reliability of the law. It was in fact God's word. It did overtake the people. It did come true. It is to be believed. But if the law is reliable... As seen as, in, as seen in the just retribution, is not the gospel reliable? Is it not reliable? And look what the author brings up in, in thinking of the reliability of the gospel. It was declared at first by the Lord. You just look at his life, his death, his resurrection. It was attested to us by those who heard. Just by the way, this is one reason I think we know Paul didn't write Hebrews. He, wouldn't, he doesn't talk about himself in this way. So... It's a member of the apostolic band. We don't know who. But he says, the gospel was attested to us by those who heard the apostolic witness. And then look at verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
This is fascinating to me if you, you think there's great evidence that the book of Hebrews was written in the 60s A.D. So it's 30 years after Christ. And you realize what it takes for him to be able to write. You know, as well as I, as good as I do, the, the author says, you know about all those miracles that occurred. Think of that. He could not write that if the, miracle, if the miracles were only myths. It, it would have no play with his audience. It, it would not be convincing. If the audience listening was thinking, what miracles? It would never work. No, he's assuming that his audience will all, will all think, yeah, true, true. So it's a, it's just a, to me, it's a power, powerful attestation of the historicity of the claims of the gospel and those miracles we see in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and in Acts, that book of the early church. But it just shows the miracles are called signs for a reason. What, what do signs show? You, you see in and out and you feel happy. Because what does the sign tell you? There are hamburgers here. That's what a hamburger is all about. It's right here. The sign tells you. And the miracles tell you something too. It's not just a fireworks show. The miracles tell you something. And the miracles tell you God has come to redeem and renew his creation. And he has come in Jesus Christ. That's what the miracles tell you. It's a message. As he heals the leper, it's a picture of what he's going to do in the new earth. God has come to redeem and renew his creation. And these miracles show the reliability of the message. Jesus says, I'm the son of God. People say, prove it. He's like, miracles, raising the dead, raising myself from the dead. The apostle Paul, I'm the apostle of Jesus Christ. Prove it. Miracles. The message is proven by the miracles. The miracles are about the message, and it shows. If the law is reliable, the gospel is reliable. So the law has mediators and is reliable. The gospel has a better mediator and is just as reliable. And then the writer drops this big question. It's in verse 3. How shall we escape if we, what, neglect such a great salvation? And you see the supreme seriousness of what you do with the gospel. If those who rebelled against God by disobeying the law received a just penalty, and they did, how much more do you think those who look at the gift of the Son of God and neglect it how much more do you think they will receive a just retribution? How will we escape? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And what's the answer? We won't. We won't escape. It's so serious. And the word he used is not deny, which strikes me. How shall we neglect if we deny such a great salvation? That's not the word he used. He could have used it, I suppose. But instead he said neglect. And that's a different word, isn't it? It's, it's not to have the heart say, this isn't true, although that could be included. It's having the heart saying, this isn't that important. This is the heart saying the gospel's not that important. I'm just going to push it over here because I'm really into this instead. I want to live for this instead. Oh, yeah, the God. No, I want to live for this instead. How will we 
escape. Because that's the kind of heart that leaves Jesus. We saw that in the parable of the soils. We see it in the life of Judas. Why did he leave Jesus? Is it because he didn't believe Jesus existed? No. Is it because he didn't believe Jesus did miracles? No. What did he want? Well, he saw Jesus having a humble kingdom, not of this world, where he would be marginalized and suffer, and Judas would not have power and not have money. Judas said, I want money and I want power, and I want that more than I want Jesus, and he betrayed him. You know, sometimes people like to say the God of the Old Testament is full of wrath, the God of the New Testament is nice, right? It's like he finally took his anger management class in that 400 years between the two covenants, finally realized his main job is to forgive. But I want to tell you, the God of the Old Testament is gracious and merciful. And the God of the New Testament is full of just wrath. It is the same God. And sure, the focus of just wrath in the Old Testament was more temporal, right? It was here and now for people and nations. And the focus of New Testament wrath is more eternal. It'll all really get taken care of when Jesus comes back. That's when it'll get taken care of. But this is supremely serious, isn't it? Just one more thought on this. You can imagine someone with incredible need in your life, and you you sacrifice yourself, and you give of yourself, and you give of something precious to, to help and to serve and to bless this person. And you imagine, and, and maybe some, some parents here are like, uh, yeah, I get this, okay? And you imagine pouring yourself out, and that person you gave this precious thing to looks up and goes, eh. I'm not interested. It's not that great. And they're into something else instead. Your heart feels insulted. And then we imagine meeting God the Father having heard about the gospel and being caught red-handed with our hearts saying, nah, I'd rather have comfort. I'd rather have control. That person will not escape. And so you see the therefore. That's all about the therefore. Verse 1, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. If you're like, if your life, if you will, you're in a boat, and the current of desires for comfort and control in your life, and all you have to do to drift again, what do you have to do to drift? Nothing. The current will do all it needs to do, and all of a sudden, you're not paying that close attention you need to pay to what you have heard. Do you hear the emphasis there? You've got to keep hearing the gospel. And paying close attention to it, almost obsessing with it, celebrating, loving it, holding to it, and never to neglect it. It's so serious. You want to stay with Jesus. That's the first thing. You, you just want to stay with Jesus. You don't, you don't ever want to leave Jesus. You don't want to love it. You don't want to ever love anything more than Jesus. It's supremely serious. Now the supreme subjection. This is in verses 5 to 8. Uh, The author here in Hebrews quotes Psalm 8. If you go and read Psalm 8, it's about the majesty of God as seen in his creation, how he rules over it, how he triumphs over his enemies. And it is majestic, isn't it, to remember that God has created all things. 
That helps people in their prayers. You know, when your prayers feel small, you see the example in the Old Testament, God, you made everything. We're like, okay, that's who I'm praying to. Big, beautiful, glorious, powerful. But the author of that psalm in Psalm 8 is not just amazed at God's creation, but he's amazed that God has given dominion over the creation to human beings who are to represent him. And he finds that majestic, the mystery of human beings. A little lower than the angels, a mixture of dust and spirit. Uh, So beautiful, so fragile. We remember Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, right? They were to represent him on the earth like a benevolent king and queen. They were to represent his character, his holiness, his creativity. As they bring order out of chaos, they were to do it for his glory, for the blessing of others. They're crowned with glory and honor. And truly, we want to remember, right? Every human being is made in the image of God and is glorious because of that. And we make no distinction, do we? Every single human being is made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect because of that image that person carries. But even as we celebrate the the majesty of God's creation and how he subjects creation to human beings, we also, of course, realize something is very wrong. Something's very wrong. As Christians, we know the truth, right? What happened? What went wrong? Adam fell. Eve fell. They believed the lie. God's not good. His word's not true. He's to be replaced. And we have believed that lie as well. We live accordingly. And as we did that, in a way, we handed over the keys to this stewardship. You know, the biblical authors talk about the prince of the power of the air, who's, who's kind of in charge in a way over this realm. It's, it's the evil one. Handed over the keys of the stewardship. So the powers of evil have sway, and creation now is subjected, Romans 8, to futility. It's broken. It doesn't work as it should because we don't work as we should because our hearts are twisted. All that's just background to Psalm 8 because the author of Hebrews would say, yeah, that's absolutely right, and then he would say, but that's not ultimately what Psalm 8 is all about. Because have, have you picked up on this yet? When the author of Hebrews reads the Psalms, guess who he's seeing? He's seeing Jesus. And this is just right. The author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 8 about Jesus. He has the right to do this. Jesus quotes Psalm 8 about himself in the Gospels. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul shows us that Jesus is the second and better Adam the ultimate son of man, the true human being. And so we look at the life of Jesus and we see he, he did it right. Perfect wisdom, perfect truth, perfect love, perfect righteousness, true, truly man, everything a human could or should be right there in Jesus. And then because of his perfect life, his death on a cross, his resurrection, Jesus now fulfills Psalm 8 in that all things are subjected to who? To him. And so this text says, nothing has been left outside of Jesus' control. Do you see that? God has left nothing outside of Jesus' control. All things are subjected to Christ. When does that occur? When is that? That's now. It's now. He's working in all things, either for his glory in just wrath or for his glory in lavish mercy. 
but he's king now. And most explicitly, he's king over us, Lord willing. Our minds, our hearts, our lives, our goals, our community. Now you might say, what, Jesus is king over all right now? It's hard to see sometimes. Couldn't agree more. Look at, look at verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Read the news. There's a lot of things that are not in subjection to him. Look at the world outside. There's not a lot of, sometimes, there's not a lot of things in subjection to him. And if you're honest with yourself, is your mind and your heart, are your deeds completely in subjection to him? I dare say not. But this is only for a limited time. It's only for a limited time. One day he will return. The creation that is his, he will return for it. And as he returns, all things will be seen to be explicitly, completely subjected to him. And things will finally be restored and renewed to the way they ought to be and even better. And that's why the Christian heart says, come Lord Jesus. Are you ready? Are you ready to see it cleaned up? Are you ready to see the tables turned? Are you ready to see the last being first? Are you ready to see evil crushed and God's people vindicated? Are you ready to see it transformed? But if that's true, this supreme subjection, that all things are Christ's, and they will be his forever, and it has started now, and he's reigning now, and one day it'll be renewed and finished, it's all his what does that have to say to whether or not you'd want to leave him? Think of the things we're tempted to leave him for. But in that, we're looking for a kind of a twisted happiness, right? If I just had this kind of a lifestyle outside of his control, then I'd be happy, so I'll leave Jesus. Or if I could just get out of this persecution or difficulty, I'd be happier, so I'll leave Jesus. You want to be happy? Be satisfied in and with the one to whom all things are subjected. And then as you are his, when he returns, Jesus is so generous, he shares his kingdom with you. You leave Jesus for whatever you leave him for, and you lose everything. You stay with Jesus, whatever you lose, you gain everything. Because it's all subjected to Jesus. I appreciate what C.S. Lewis said on this idea about the weight of glory, or in his sermon, the weight of glory. He's talking about desires, right? And, and we've seen the, the, some of the reasons people who profess Jesus leave him, some of the reason they leave is desires. They want some things more than they want Jesus. They're trying to be happy in a crooked, rebellious, sinful way, right? Isn't that why you sin? Look what Lewis says. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, Lewis says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
The supreme subjection of all things means that your supreme joy will be Christ and his kingdom. Don't leave him. Third reason you never want to leave Jesus, superior, supreme grace. Superior, supreme grace. Verse 9. We, in verse 8, the author said, we don't, we don't see all things subjected to Jesus yet. We don't see everything in subjection to him. Look at the, the next four words in verse 9. We don't see right now in our lives, in our world, all things subjected explicitly to Jesus Christ. But there is something we do see. The first four words in verse 9. What is it? But we see him. But we see him. What do you think of that? Do you think the people receiving this letter had seen Jesus with their own eyes? Maybe. But I don't, I don't think so in context. Moreover, the, the tense of it, it's not we saw him once. It's present. We see Jesus now. And so it's a worthy question to say, how's that happening? I haven't seen him. How do I see him? Well, remember, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. And friends, this is how faith works. This is how faith works. This is how the seed of the gospel hits your heart and grows. When you hear the truth of the gospel, and it goes through your mind, and your heart says not only, yes, that's true, but also, and oh, I want it. And you hold to that. And you believe God at his word. As we see Jesus in the gospels, as we hear of him from the epistles, even now as we are pondering his word and we believe it, guess who we see with the eyes of our heart? We see Jesus. We know him to be true. We know him to be beautiful. We know he will keep his promises. It's as if we've met him. Uh, the, the Apostle Peter writes about this. Even, even though you haven't seen him, you love him with love that's inexpressible. I mean, do you love Jesus today? So many of you do. I, I love Jesus, not as much as I should. I love him. How can I love someone I've never seen? Well, I've, I have in his word. I've seen him with you as we sing, as we live it out, as we hear his word. We see Jesus. We see him. That's why I think this book, Hebrews, is, is the theme is eyes on Christ. Eyes on Christ. You don't want to drift? Guess where you need to look? Jesus, Hebrews 12. You want to run the race? Guess where you need to look? Jesus, eyes on Christ. See him again. Supreme, beautiful, worth it. We see Jesus. And what do we see in verse 9? We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do you see him? 
Do you see the beauty of the eternal Son of God taking on human flesh and walking in our shoes? He knows what it's like. He's been tempted. He's suffered. He knows. Do you see him never once sinning against his Father? Do you hear his words? Do you see him humiliated and rejected, tasting death for us? When the text here says he tasted death, it's, it's not like an appetizer or he went to a wine tasting and had a little, little bit of death and was like, ooh, no thank you. No, it means, you think about how Jesus prays in the Gospels, shall I not drink the cup? It means he, he took it and he drank it. It means he knows full on exactly, he has totally experienced what it means to suffer and die. He's truly man who truly died. And he tasted death. For, don't you love that word? For, it means substitution. It means in your place. For, now that's, the text is we're reading it in ESV. It says, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That is certainly a possible translation. I think a different one's a little better. Another way to, to translate this is you could say he tasted death for all things. And at first you might think, what? Jesus died for all things? I don't hear that very often. But, but think about it. In the context, Psalm 8, Hebrews 2, what is it that has been subjected to Jesus? All things. And so often the author of Hebrews, he's thinking of Jesus from the point of view of his incarnation. And so the idea here, I think, is that in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, he purchased for himself, yes, his people, and everything. <laughs> All of it is his now. Due to his life, death, and resurrection. Paul says the same thing in Colossians. Look at Colossians 1.19. Colossians 1.19, for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself, what? All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How did Jesus buy all things to himself? What did he do to have them all subjected to himself? He made peace by the blood of his cross. And of course, this is highlighted in his people. Look at verse 21. And you, isn't this our story? You who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. What has Jesus done for you? He's now reconciled you. It's, it's, a, it's a relationship renewed. It's a debt paid. The Father was justly angry at you. You were rebellious against him, but the Father has turned toward you in Christ. And in the death and resurrection of Christ, as we see him by the power of the Spirit, our eyes are open, our hearts are changed. We see him and we are drawn to him and we trust him and we are reconciled to him. Brought together again so that we can be, present, so we can be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. Verse 23, it fits our passage. If indeed you what? Continue in the faith. Continue in the faith. I'll ask this question real quick. Some of you might be thinking, are you saying you can lose your salvation? And I want to tell you explicitly, clearly, I'm absolutely not saying 
that you, anyone who is genuinely saved can lose their salvation. I don't believe that. I don't think the letter of Hebrews believes that. I don't think the Bible believes that. I think Jesus bats a thousand. All, all the Father gives me will come to me. I won't lose one. Jesus says that. Everybody Jesus wants to say, save, he, he saves. Once saved, always saved. Amen. And, and, that view of God's sovereignty in salvation shall not, must not lead to robotic fatalism where you drift. The sovereign salvation of God plays itself out in hearts and minds and deeds. And so warnings are given in God's word to show us who is saved. Because those who love Christ hear warnings like this and go, oh, I don't want to leave him. I want to hang on tighter to him. I trust him. I want to follow him. I want to obey him. And those who are going to persist in their drift just go, man. But the point of this last section here, we see him. Jesus has bought everything tasted death for everyone to to win all things to himself, to especially win his people to himself. But there's that phrase. What was the cause of this or the, the motivator of this? So that by the grace of God. It's so sweet. What is grace? There's, there's two aspects we have to put in our definition of that word. One, of course, is love, right? His, his lavish love is pouring out of his blessing, his, for, his forgiveness, his acceptance. The inheritance we'll receive, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is just all this love of God and all its varieties and forms, grace. But, there, but there's another aspect we must have in our definition. And it's this. It's undeserved. It's undeserved. You see, if, if these people, this guy's writing go back to the law, and they want salvation, they want to know God without Christ, guess what they've lost? The possibility of grace. Do you want to meet God the judge answering for your own sins? I don't want that. I really don't want that. What's the other option? The other option is that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and he takes responsibility for all your sins. In fact, he already has taken responsibility for all your sins so that in Christ the Father says, of those who trust him, righteous, innocent, forgiven, come inherit my kingdom. Only place you receive the supreme grace of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't leave him. You like grace? Don't leave him. This is it. This is where you find it. In him, you have all of it. All of God's grace, and without him, to deny him, to neglect the message of who he is, to turn away, how shall you escape? So friends, I hope you're convinced that even as you face pressures to, perhaps in some way, whether it's on a small scale or a 
a huge scale, if slash when you face persecution for explicitly trusting Christ and his word, and you're going to be tempted to just neglect that because you want to be comfortable, I do too, you remember. He's worth staying with no matter the cost. This is the supreme seriousness. Hold fast to faith in Christ. This is the supreme subjection and ultimately the supreme control. It's all his, and you will share him and all he has with him forever. And third, this is where you find grace. Let's never leave him. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word. I pray that we would be encouraged to hold fast to you and your word. Uh, We want you to save us, deliver us. We want to be more comfortable. We want everything to work out. We get fearful and frustrated. Let us see you, Lord Jesus, and believe. Let us hold fast, knowing that you are worth it in every way. And we thank you that as you do so, uh, you've, you've not just left us to ourselves, but you're here with us. You're able to sympathize. You're able to help in every way. Uh, it's not we who hold fast to you, but you who hold fast to us. We thank you for these great promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.